Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Circle Opens, a podcast devoted to the works of Stephen King. Need an affordable source for Stephen King books, movies, collectibles, and more? Make sure to visit Secondhand Bookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Listeners of this podcast can use the coupon code THECIRCLE for 20% off their order anytime, and there's always free shipping to the United States. That's Secondhand Bookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Circle Opens. Happy Saturday. I hope everyone's doing well, and thank you so much for joining me again on our journey through Stephen King's short stories and novellas. Today, we are going to talk about Graveyard Shift, which is the second story in the Stephen King's compilation, Night Shift. Graveyard Shift was originally published in 1970 in the October issue of Cavalier Magazine. In 1990, it was adapted into a film directed by Ralph Singleton. The movie starred David Andrews, Kelly Wolf, Stephen Macht, and Brad Dorif, whose daughter Fiona is portraying the Rat Woman in the CBS all-access adaptation of The Stand. I have not seen the adaptation of Graveyard Shift, although I did read the synopsis of the movie online, and it does seem as though they took many, many liberties with the story, but what else is new when it comes to a Stephen King movie adaptation? I did take a look, and it seemed to have had a somewhat modest theatrical release, bringing in about $11 million at the box office, and it currently sits at 13% rotten on Rotten Tomatoes. Not that I put a whole lot of stock into Rotten Tomatoes scoring, but that was just something of interest that I had noted down when I was researching this episode. As always, please be mindful that this episode will contain spoilers for Graveyard Shift. If you have not yet read the short story from Night Shift, please stop the podcast, read it, and come back. Or if you don't mind spoilers, then just keep listening. Graveyard Shift centers around a drifter named Hall, who has taken a job in a failing textile mill during a particularly hot summer in Gates Falls, Maine. Hall is someone who has moved around quite a bit in the last three years after leaving Berkeley. Since then, he's been a busboy in Lake Tahoe, a stevedore in Galveston, a short order cook in Miami, a taxi driver and a dishwasher in Wheeling, and now a picker machine operator in the mill. He didn't mind the work at the mill. He worked 11 to 7 when it was cooler inside the building. The only thing he didn't like was the rats. He's working, or rather waiting for work, when the foreman named Warwick shows up. It's clear from the get-go that Hall does not like Warwick. He especially doesn't like getting caught chucking full cans of soda at the rats that have nested on the third floor and seem to pop out of their hiding spots to watch him. Warwick offers Hall the option to make a bit of overtime money. They need a crew to work the week of July 4th, cleaning out the basement of the mill. Apparently, the basement hadn't been touched in 12 years, and it was a right mess. They'll be working the graveyard shift, as it'll be cooler at that time of day or night. And since he could use the money, Hall agrees. Warwick begins calling Hall college boy before he leaves, and Hall watches him go waits for another rat with a can in his hand. He could just imagine how it would be in the basement, the sub-basement actually, a level below the dye house. Damp, 
dark, full of spiders and rotten cloth and ooze from the river, and rats, maybe even bats, the aviators of the rodent family. Ugh. Hall gets back to work, and after a while, the rats came out and sat atop the bags at the back of the long room watching him with their unblinking black eyes. They looked like a jury. 11 p.m. on Monday. There are 36 men waiting when Warwick arrives. Hall is hanging around a man named Harry Wisconski. Wisconski is described as being enormously fat, enormously lazy, and enormously gloomy. Warwick begins assigning various tasks to the men. Wisconski is quite sour about it, claiming that someone was going to get hurt. Just wait and see. Warwick assigns Hall and Wisconski to help with moving the crap in the basement to the air shaft at the west end of the basement using electric wagons. At 2 a.m. on Tuesday morning, Hall is exhausted. He's also tired of listening to Wisconski's complaining. Hall hates the smell of the basement, polluted stink of the river, decaying fabric, vegetable matter. The dim light bulbs in the basement don't help much. The place looked like the shattered nave of a desecrated church with its high ceiling and mammoth discarded machinery that they would never be able to move, its wet walls overgrown with patches of yellow moss, and the atonal choir that was the water from the hoses running in the half-clogged sewer network that eventually emptied into the river below the falls. And the rats, huge ones that made those on third look like dwarfs. God knew what they were eating down here. They were continually overturning boards and bags to reveal huge nests of shredded newspaper, watching with the atavistic loathing as the pups fled into the cracks and crannies, their eyes huge and blind with the continuous darkness. When Wisconski and Hall stop for a smoke, Wisconski complains that this wasn't a work for a man, but Hall is distracted by thoughts of Warwick. Warwick and the rats... Weird how the two things seem tied together. The rats seem to have forgotten all about the men in their long stay under the mill. They were impudent and hardly afraid at all. One of them had sat up on its hind legs like a squirrel until Hall had gotten in kicking distance, and then it had launched itself at its boot, biting at the leather, hundreds, maybe thousands. He wondered how many varieties of disease they were carrying around in this black sump hole, and Warwick. Something about him. 4 a.m. on Tuesday. It's lunchtime. Hall, Wisconski, and some others gather to eat. They find out that a man named Ray Upson had to go home after getting bit by a rat. It had lat latched onto Ray's hand and wouldn't let go until they hit it with a board three or four times. Warwick put a bandage on the bite and sent Ray home. When they get back to work, Warwick asks Hall how things are going, calling him college boy and then continuing on his way without waiting for an answer. Hall returns home, and the next morning he showers and then falls asleep, dreaming of rats. The next morning, 1 a.m. on Wednesday, Hall is running the hoses this time, which he finds to be better than the crap crew. The work is proceeding slowly, which pisses off Warwick. They would never be finished by Thursday which is what he was hoping for. Now they were working on a helter-skelter jumble of 19th century office equipment that had been piled in one corner. Smashed roll-top desks, moldy ledgers, reams of invoices, chairs with broken seats, 
and it was rat heaven. Scores of them squeaked and ran through the dark and crazy passages that honeycombed the heap, and after two men were bitten, the others refused to work until Warwick sent someone upstairs to get heavy, rubberized gloves, the kind usually reserved for the dye house crew, which had to work with acids. While Wisconsky and Hall are waiting to go in with the hoses, a worker named Carmichael begins screaming. A huge, ugly rat had bitten into his shirt and hung there, squeaking and kicking at Carmichael's belly with his back paws. When Carmichael knocked it away, there was a huge hole in his shirt and blood trickling above one nipple. Carmichael vomited while Hall turned the hose on the rat, driving it back against the wall where it smashed limply. Hall turns the hose on the furniture, causing nesting rats to flee everywhere. They were bigger than any Hall had ever seen. Huge eyes, sleek, plump bodies. Once he could see no more, Hall shut the nozzle down, and Warwick demanded that they go back to work. Another man tells Warwick he wasn't hired to be an exterminator. He was hired to clean up, not get rabies or typhoid. And Hall is examining the tip of the hose. To him, it looked like a forty-five, and could probably knock a man 25 feet. Warwick tells Cy, the man who complained, that he can punch his clock, but this wasn't a union, and if anyone leaves, they don't get to come back. Hall mutters that Warwick is a hot ticket, but when Warwick calls him out on it, Hall replies that he was just clearing his throat, and they get back to work. 2 a.m. Thursday. Hall and Wisconsky are on the electric wagons again, picking up the junk. Hall is distracted by wondering where all the rats had gone to. He didn't think they had gone into the walls since he was pretty sure they would drown since the nearby river had saturated pretty much everything. And then something black and flapping flew at them, causing Wisconsky to scream. It was a bat, which is basically just a rat with wings, right? Surely they got in the same way that the rats must have got out. Warwick interrupts them and Hall makes an excuse that he hit his shin. And then he points out to Wisconsky that the square in the middle of the crumbling cement was the top of a support. There's another level beneath the basement. At 3.30 that same morning, Hall has Episton and Broku with him as he shows them the trap door. Then he calls Warwick over. The foreman arrives, asking if college boys' shoelaces were untied. Hall ignores him and points out the trap door into the subcellar. Warwick is not impressed, but Hall tells him that that's where the rats are. They're breeding down there. They saw a bat earlier. The rest of the men gather around the door. Warwick doesn't really care. Their job is to clean the basement. But Hall interrupts. They'll need at least 20 exterminators, trained ones, and it's going to cost management quite a bit of money. This is where things get really tense between Hall and Warwick. Warwick doesn't give a damn how many rats are under there, but Hall says that he's been to the library. He read the town zoning ordinances. They were set up in 1911, before the mill got big enough to co-opt the zoning board. Warwick tells Hall that he's fired, but Hall continues. The zoning laws in Gates Falls discuss vermin. It means disease-carrying animals such as bats, skunks, unlicensed dogs, 
and rats, especially rats. Rats are mentioned 14 times in two paragraphs, Mr. Foreman. So you just keep in mind that the minute I punch out, I'm going straight to the town commissioner and tell him what the situation down here is. They could get an injunction on the mill, and it would be shut down much longer than Saturday. He can just imagine what Warwick's boss would say when he showed up. Hopefully, the unemployment insurance is paid up. Warwick is on the verge of losing his temper when he suddenly smiles and rehires Hall on the spot. He says maybe Hall ought to go down there since he's so smart. Give them an informed opinion. Wisconski can go with him. Wisconski is not pleased about being volunteered for this, but a look from Warwick shuts him up. Hall seems cheerful enough. He asks for three flashlights. Warwick tells Hall that, sure, he can take someone else and he gets to pick his man. Of course, Hall picks Warwick. He tells Warwick, after all, the management should be represented, don't you think? Just so Wisconsky and I don't see too many rats down there. Someone begins to laugh and Warwick studies them all carefully before telling Broku to go fetch the flashlights. Wisconsky moans, asking why Hall got him into this. Hall points out that it wasn't him. Warwick looked back at him, and neither would drop his eyes. 4 a.m. on Thursday. Warwick gets one of the halls to hand to Wisconsky. They pull open the trap door, and Warwick notes that there was a rusty lock bolted beneath the door. It shouldn't be underneath, it should be on top. Hall figures that it's on the bottom, so that nothing on their side could open it. At least when the lock was new. Maybe so nothing on the other side could get out. Wisconsky wonders who locked it, but that remains a mystery. There's a soft sound beneath, almost expectant, the whisk and platter of thousands of paws, the squeaking of rats. Wisconsky is close to losing it. He doesn't want to go down there. Warwick thinks it could be frogs, which makes Hall laugh. The three men start to descend into the subcellar. There are a few rotting boxes and barrels, but that's it. The seep from the river goes up to their ankles, but they don't hear the rats anymore. They do find a wooden box that says Elias Varney, 1841. The mill hadn't been built until 1897. They continue on. The subcellar is longer than it should be, and the smell is stronger, decay and rot, and things buried. But the only sound was the drip of water. There's a beam that protruded two feet into the cellar the outer wall of the mill. Beyond that, darkness. Warwick is ready to bail, but Hall grabs him. Mr. Foreman isn't going anywhere. Warwick, well, his response is, you're crazy, college boy. Isn't that right? Crazy as a loon. Hall warns him not to push people and grabs Wisconsky's hose. He aims it threateningly at Warwick to keep him moving. Wisconsky who King described as fat, lazy, and gloomy, is also a very smart man because he turns and starts running back towards the trapdoor stairs, leaving Warwick and Hall alone. Warwick begins to walk, and Hall notices how the rats have begun to close in around them, silent as death. Hall feels a cold satisfaction, premonition fulfilled. The rats are crowded in, rank on rank, Thousands of eyes looked greedily back at him. In ranks to the wall, 
some fully as high as a man's shin. Hall keeps Warwick walking until they come across a skull, green with moss, but laughing up at them. Hall could also see an ulna, one pelvic wing, part of a ribcage. But it does not deter Hall. He tells Warwick to keep going, thinking to himself, You are going to break before I do, Mr. Foreman, so help me God. They walk past the bones, and the rats are following, although not crowding them. Up ahead, the flooring rose sharply, then dipped. Hall could hear a stealthy rustling sound, a big sound, something that perhaps no living man had ever seen. It occurred to Hall that he had perhaps been looking for something like this through all his days of crazy wandering. Warwick tells him to look, and Hall does. He sees that something had happened to the rats back here, some hideous mutation that never could have survived under the eye of the sun. Nature would have forbidden it. But down here, nature had taken on another ghastly face. The rats were gigantic, some as high as three feet, but their rear legs were gone and they were blind as moles, like their flying cousins. They dragged themselves forward with hideous eagerness. Warwick knows that they can't go on, but Hall tells Warwick that the rats have business with him. Warwick begins to beg, and this makes Hall smile. He makes Warwick continue on, and as they reach a rise, Warwick sees something that causes him to finally turn and try to run. But Hall is too quick. He turns on the water hose nozzle, hitting Warwick directly in the chest and knocking him back out of sight. There was a long scream that rose over the sound of the water. Thrashing sounds. Warwick screams for Hall, and then a sudden, wet, ripping noise. Another scream, weaker. Something huge shifted and turned. Quite distinctly, Hall heard the wet snap that a fractured bone makes. A legless rat, guided by some bastard form of sonar, lunged against him, biting. His body was flabby, warm. Almost absently, Hall turned the hose on it, knocking it away. The hose did not have quite so much pressure now. He walks to the brow of the wet hill and looks down the way Warwick had. The rat filled the whole gully at the far end of that noxious tomb. It was a huge, pulsating gray, eyeless, totally without legs. When Hall's light struck it, it made a hideous mewling noise. Their queen, then, the Magna Mater a huge and nameless thing whose progeny might someday develop wings. It seemed to dwarf what remained of Warwick, but that was probably just illusion. It was the shock of seeing a rat as big as a Holstein calf. Hall says goodbye to Warwick and turns away to start heading for the trap door again. Rats gather around him, but he uses the hose to keep them at bay, although the water was growing less and less potent. Some of the rats got through and attacked his legs, ripping at his pants. He was nearly three-quarters of the way back when another bat smashed into his face. A mutated bat. They hadn't lost their tails yet. It whipped around Hall's neck in a loathsome coil and squeezed as the teeth sought the soft spot under his neck. It wriggled and flapped with its membrous wings clutching the tatters of his shirt for purchase. Hall uses the nozzle of the hose to beat at the bat until it finally falls away. He's dimly aware that he's screaming, and then he begins to run, shaking them off as he can. Some bit at his chest, his belly. 
One ran up his shoulder and stuck its muzzle into his ear. Then he ran into the second bat, where it roosted on his head, then ripped away a flap of his scalp. His body was growing numb, ears full of screeching rats. He gave one last heave, stumbling over furry bodies, and fell to his knees. He began to laugh, a high, screaming sound. 5 a.m. on Thursday? The men waiting above the trapdoor wonder if they ought to go down there. Wisconsky quickly says he won't do it. Brogan, Ipsten, Dangerfield, and Nedow decide to go find Hall and Warwick. They think maybe the two men stopped for a smoke. All of this for a few rats. Stevenson came back with the lights. A few moments later, they started down. The thing that I really love about this story is that it doesn't really answer a lot of questions, leaving things up to interpretation. The name of the mill is never known, although we do know it takes place in Gates Falls, Maine, which is mentioned in the dark half when George Stark and Liz Beaumont take the Gates Falls exit on their way to Castle Rock. Hall, we don't even get a first name for him, or a last name if Hall is his first name, but given how everyone else in the story is referred to by their last names, it's likely to be his last name. We know that he is a drifter. He left college, although we don't know why. And he's been traveling all over, taking on odd jobs here and there. So what is his deal? Why is he so fascinated about the rats? I suppose it could be easy to explain why, when he thinks of the rats, he thinks of Warwick, because he... The man himself is a bit of a rat. <laughs> Clearly, Warwick doesn't care much about safety, not in the mill or for his own men. He has them cleaning out a disgusting, dangerous basement infested with rats. When one man speaks up that they didn't sign up to be exterminators and get bit and catch some disease, Warwick basically says that any man who leaves will not have a job to come back to on Monday. He is not a nice guy, and Hall seems to latch on to that. But there's something off about Hall as well. He shows very little emotion in this story. He seems very detached, I guess. He never wants to stay in one place very long, so he's restless. He has this fascination with the rats, and when he discovers the trap door that leads into the subcellar, he seems perfectly fine with descending into the darkness where he knows the rats have been breeding. He has even gone to the library to check out the zoning laws, more or less to blackmail Warwick into going into the cellar with him. In a way, it feels like this whole thing was planned by Hall, especially since he had seen that trapdoor before and realized that there was another level beneath the basement, well before he showed it to Wisconsky. And then, with cold pleasure, he leads Warwick to his death. There's also very little panic when Hall tries to return to the trapdoor stairs. Did he think he would make it back unharmed? Only when the rats really start to attack him does he scream. And when he knows it's the end and he has no shot, no option, no hope, he begins to laugh. Warwick seemed to be right when he called Hall crazy. Was it simmering over the years, Hall's madness, or was it the mill? and Warwick, and the rats, that triggered Hall's escalating insanity. I think that King does an excellent job describing the rundown mill, especially the basement. The stench, and the rot, and the decay. The way he mentioned, you know, it smelled like things buried. 
terrible odor can trigger negative emotion in people. Exposure to toxic vapors and stench can cause depression and anger, anxiety. Certainly being stuck downstairs in what appears to be a rather hellish environment probably didn't help Hall's behavior or his growing hatred of Warwick. I guess one could read the story and see Hall's treatment of Warwick as revenge for how he treated the mill and the people who worked there. Hall told him that the rats had business with him, after all, or perhaps it was just Hall who had business with him. Just like with Chapel Waite and Jerusalem's Lot, it felt like the mill had become a character on its own as well, harboring dark secrets that are never discovered beyond the mutated rats below. Maybe the mill had the capability of turning men mad, like Hall, or maybe Hall was always mad and the mill just exasperated the problem. And I found the mystery of the trap door to be really intriguing. Who put the lock on the inside of the door to keep people out or to keep whatever was below in? Was it this Elias Varney, the man whose name was on the box below? Was it Elias's skull and bits of his skeleton that Hall and Warwick found? Was there someone else that was sent below? I can't say they were locked in because whoever went down there could have gotten right back up, but certainly they had made sure that no one else could get in after them. This particular box from Elias Farney, I think the date was 1841, and the mill hadn't been built until 50 plus years later. So who was it that was down there? Was this person breeding the rats? Were they performing experiments? Was it the simple pollution from the river and the dark that caused the mutation in the rats? If the rats had lived in the cellar for over a decade, could they survive above ground? Obviously, there are rats all over the mill, but are they from the same breed as the mutated rats? Was Hall a sociopath? There are so many questions here. And what's going to happen to the group of men descending down into the basement to find Hall and Warwick? Will they die too? Or will they see what's happening and have enough sense to flee and shut that trap door? I like to imagine Wisconsky is already headed out to his car <laughs> and driving home by the time the other men find out what happened down there. I thought this was a really good story. It was chilling and disgusting with a protagonist that I found every bit as unlikable as the antagonist. Rats in the walls, just like Jerusalem's lot, except there were actual rats in the story and not the undead. And the ending, with the other men starting to head into the cellar. It's a perfect ending because King lets your imagination take over and finish off their story for him. King talks about Graveyard Shift in his book on writing, A Memoir of the Craft. I believe it's part 21. He says, just after the senior class trip to Washington, D.C., I got a job at Warumba Mills and Weaving in Lisbon Falls. I didn't want it. The work was hard and boring. The mill itself a dingy fuckhole overhanging the polluted Androscoggin River, like a workhouse in a Charles Dickens novel. But I needed the paycheck. King worked bagging loose fabric after school for eight hours until 11 p.m. And in the summer, he moved down to the dye house in the basement where it was cooler. And he writes, During 4th of July week, the mill closed. Employees with five years or more at Warumbo got the week off with pay. Those with fewer than five years were offered work on a crew that was going to clean the mill from top to bottom, including the basement. 
which hadn't been touched in 40 or 50 years. I probably would have agreed to work on this crew. It was time and a half. But all the positions were filled long before the foreman got down to the high school kids who'd be gone in September. When I got back to work the following week, one of the Die House guys told me I should have been there. It was wild. He says the rats down in the basement were big as cats. Some of them, goddamn if they weren't big as dogs. King continues to write, One day, late in my final semester at college, finals over, and at loose ends, I recalled the Die House guy's story about the rats under the mill. Big as cats, goddamn some as big as dogs, and started writing a story called Graveyard Shift. I was only passing the time on a late spring afternoon, but two months later, Cavalier Magazine bought the story for $200. I had sold two other stories previous to this, but they had brought in a total of just $65. This was three times that, and at a single stroke, it took my breath away. It did. I was rich. So King took inspiration for Graveyard Shift from his own high school job at a local mill where he bagged loose fabric and then worked in the dye house in the much cooler basement. And just like Hall and the rest of the men at that mill, the men that King worked with were offered a crew to clean the mill top to bottom, including the basement during 4th of July weekend. Now, of course, the man telling King the story about the gigantic rats could have been exaggerating, embellishing a little because why not? But who knows? Who knows what grows or breathes underground in the dark when no one is around to disturb it? I loved reading this bit of King history, understanding how he gets his ideas for some of his stories. Something so simple as a basement cleaning in a mill turned into a questionable protagonist, a cruel foreman, and mutated rats with a queen rat as big as a calf. It's morbid, and I love it. (laughs) I think this is also a good answer to that question. When you're in front of an author and you want to say, where do you get your ideas? Because I'm sure that's the one question they get asked more than anything, not just King, any author. And just like that, King gives you the answer. It could be anything. Somebody just telling you a story from work about how they saw some gigantic rats cleaning the basement. And then it can become something so chilling. It's this short story of horror, just like that. I am jealous of the writers who can take something so simple and create something so horrifying. It's wonderful. I think if I'm going to rate Graveyard Shift out of five, I would give it a four and a half. And next week, I'll be reviewing Night Surf, a short story that first introduced us to Captain Tripp's many years before King sat down and expanded the plague into the stand. Stay tuned as well for my review of the fourth episode of the CBS All Access uh, adaptation of The Stand, The House of the Dead, that will be coming to you very soon. And if you are enjoying this podcast, it would be amazing and wonderful and so appreciated if you left me a good rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And if you would like to get in touch with me about The Stand, the podcast, Night Shift, anything King-related, shoot me an email at thecirclecloses at gmail.com, or you can find me on social media at The Circle Opens, or (laughs) you can go to thecircleopens.com, which is where I have been blogging and will very shortly be posting my review of The Gunslinger the first book in dark the Dark Tower series. I finally finished it. I will be posting my review very soon. 
I'm still debating whether or not to do a special episode on the gunslinger for the podcast, but um, I'm not sure yet. So we'll see. But if you would like to read my review, just check out thecircleopens.com. And with that being said, everybody, I hope you have a fantastic week. I know that this week was rough. It was stressful. I hope you are all staying safe and hang in there. 2021 is not off to a great start, but we, uh, I, I would like to say we can only go up from here, but I'm going to knock on wood because I don't want to jinx everything. <laughs> so, okay. Uh, that's it before I make everything worse. M-O-O-N, that spells, see you next week. <laughs>